welcome everybody to uh, this episode of the TCU Neely School Business Real Estate Webinar. Uh, my name is Carl Pankratz, and I am an adjunct professor at TCU. And I am also uh, a, uh, I guess, the President Managing Director of Blackacre Commercial, the sponsor of today's event. So uh, as we get started, uh, very lucky to have my co-pilots. Um, the real reason that we're able to, to do this every week, Christina, uh, Rangel Batista. Christina, what is happening at TCU? So we're in full swing um, pandemic style at TCU. We are rocking and rolling. Um, our semester is underway. We're preparing for our spring cohort to begin in January, which is right around the corner. So we're still accepting applications and interviewing um, for our professional MBA program that will start this spring. Um, but we've also got to start in the, this fall. So we're heading out to places like Lockheed Martin virtually, connecting with folks at BNSF, connecting with all of our corporate partners to make sure that folks um, know that we are still functioning at TCU and uh, based on everything I've heard back doing it well. And so we are, you know, having students on campus if they're comfortable. We're having students, you know, teaching in live virtually if they're comfortable doing that. Um, kind of getting it done. So excited to join you again, Carl. I know life's been busy and I feel like I've missed a couple. And so um, I'm always excited to tune in. Jason, thanks for being here today. One of the awesome things about TCU um, and just the faculty that we have are the relationships that you all have professionally, right? You're really kind of industry experts for us. And so that makes a really great adjunct faculty member at TCU. And so having Jason join us and others on these weekly real estate webinars um, is a great peek into industry and what's going on and, and really getting firsthand experience. And so you even thinking up the idea to do this and it's really taken off every week. Um, I'm appreciative of that and happy to be here. Yeah, great. And Christina, I just want to do a plug for my class. I uh, So in the fall, I teach real estate law, but in the spring, I uh, teach this class called Real Estate Acquisitions and Development. So anybody that listens to the podcast or watching this live, uh, it's a really cool 16-week class. The first eight weeks are develop or acquisition. So we go through kind of every step of the acquisition of buying a piece of property. And then the last eight weeks is a really creative uh, we team up into teams of five and you're redeveloping a, a blighted downtown of a fictitious city. So it's really fun to have an acquisition and a real life development component. So take my class if you're uh, if you're watching or considering going to TCU. Yes, no problem in plugging it. And the cool thing about our real estate elective offerings is that um, you surprise yourself at how many students are interested in real estate that say, I'd never become a, a, an investor, maybe. You know, I don't know that that's my career path, but I've always had interest in it. And so Elective courses like yours are really exciting for them to be able to allot some of their hours to um, that industry, even if, you know, their full-time gig is in aerospace or whatever the case may be. Um, they really, really enjoy your elective classes. So awesome plug. Thank you, Christina. Well, Jason, uh, today we have a special guest in Jason Simon. So Jason is the uh, Director of Governmental Affairs for the Apartment Association of Greater Dallas, uh, but he's also a friend. I, uh, I'm i a big fan of Jason, and he just he's so knowledgeable on so many different areas. And for those listening uh, later on the podcast, this is being uh, recorded November 4th, so you cannot see the bags under Jason's and I's eyes uh, from what happened on November 3rd. And uh, we'll get into to some um, election kind of discussion, um, but first, Jason, welcome to the uh, program. And if you don't mind, you know, introduce yourself. Thank you so much, Carl. And thank you, Christina, for all you guys do for the community, for TCU, uh, for the real estate industry. 
Uh, so I am the Director of Government Affairs at the Apartment Association of Greater Dallas. We are the second largest local apartment association in the country. We just surpassed 600,000 rental units uh, for our membership. So that's a, that's a really big deal for us. Uh, we're, we've got members in 11 counties in North Texas. So basically Dallas County, Collin County, Denton County, and then the several counties surrounding Dallas. And then Tarrant County has their own apartment association. They represent Tarrant County and then out to the West. But um, my, my primary role is, is government affairs, is dealing full-time uh, with our policy agenda for the rental housing industry, uh, working with elected officials at the local level, the state level, the national level. Um, if you join the apartment association, Anyone that owns or manages rental property can join the apartment association. And if you join the association, we're a federation, we're an affiliated organization. So if you join locally at the Apartment Association of Greater Dallas, you also become a member at the Texas Apartment Association, the state association, which represents the rental housing industry across the state of Texas down in Austin. And you also become a member of the National Apartment Association which is in the Alexandria, Virginia area, in the DC area. So um, you, you kind of get all levels covered there if you, if you join the local association. Uh, but again, what I do is, is work uh, on building relationships with policymakers, local, state, and federal, who have an impact on the real estate industry every day. Uh, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but you know, managing those relationships and being an advocate, being a voice for our members, uh, with those policymakers, and so much of what we do, Carl, is is education. I mean, probably ninety percent of of what I do is 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 educating uh, policymakers, elected officials about our industry, because uh, they're dealing with so many different issues, um, getting getting stuff thrown at them, you know, all the time on different topics. Um, they're really not, you know, unless they own or manage rental property, they really don't understand. The, the real estate industry, or if they have some kind of real estate background. And I would say the vast majority of them do not have that background. So, you know, we serve as, uh, as advocates and, and, you know, educators, you know, educating these, these uh, elected officials on the issues. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the vast majority of, of the work that I do, building relationships, educating policymakers, and of course, trying to persuade them, trying to influence policy, uh, to, to benefit the real estate industry, which, you know, we, we feel like benefits the entire economy, benefits the state. Uh, the rental housing industry is, a I think, a $1.3 trillion industry nationwide. So, I mean, it's a real economic engine for the country and certainly for the state of Texas. Mm. You know, when I was a city councilman, I remember I was so scared of lobbyists. You know, if somebody said they're a lobbyist, I, I kind of, you know, had some bug spray, get away from me, get away from me, you know, and, but then as you kind of grow and you mature, when there's an issue that a policymaker doesn't quite understand, a lobbyist can actually be an incredible tool for you to get one side of the story, right? And sure. a lot of times it's kind of, you know, you're not going to know the issues facing an apartment owner. So why not ask a PAC who is, whose sole focus is protecting apartment owners? So it's, it's an invaluable asset to get both sides. So um, I guess, can you kind of talk about just kind of, you know, number one, building relationships, but two, the, the really the policy inf information side that you really give the candidates. Sure. So, you know, again, it's, it's relationship building and, and a lot of that 
uh, has to do with you know what we'll talk about later in, in you know campaigns and elections because of course you, you have to get elected to office before you you can serve and and, uh, and make those those decisions on policy and, and uh, you know the industry but you know again I think a lot of what we do is on the education side working with these individuals to make sure that they understand our concerns the the issues that we deal with that, that face the real estate community are it's a really broad issue set. I mean, it's a very diverse issue set. So, you know, anything from, from regulatory, you know, building codes to environmental issues, to fair housing issues, to, you know, fees, um, you know, police, fire, you know, kind of your lo very local kind of bread and butter issues um, that, that you deal with at the city level, um, you know, come up again and again for our members. And, and it's, so you're really, you're really dealing with a lot of, of different issues and you really have to kind of dig in and understand you know again everything from tax policy to environmental policy to, to regulatory um, and, and be able to, to, to make your case and, and why why you know the real estate industry is an important industry and the, the number of jobs that the industry creates and the amount of, of taxes that are paid into a particular you know city or county or state uh, to show that, that we are you know we're not just you know, some kind of nameless, faceless, you know, apartment building somewhere. I mean, we're, we're significantly contributing financially and otherwise providing affordable housing to our local communities um, and really just trying to communicate that message over and over again and, you know, on, on different levels. Uh, but really the, the most work that we do uh, in our association is on the local level. I mean, of course, you've got experience there. You know, you served on council in Rowlett. Um, but, you know, those city council, uh, you know, the city council members and the, the county commissioners and the folks at the local level are really the ones that we interact with most. And their decisions, I think, you know, probably have some of the greatest impacts on our industry. Now, recently with coronavirus, you've seen um, some of our issues really elevated to, to the national level, I would say more than they ever have been before, uh, certainly around the issue of evictions and uh, just the industry's response to COVID-19. You see Congress, you know, you really see Congress weighing in on, on our issues, I think more than, than I've ever experienced, you know, at the association, uh, been, been doing this work full time for more than five years now. Um, you know, typically, state, typically on the local level, but, but now you're seeing the increased visibility at the federal level and, you know, certainly at the state level, Every time the legislature's in session, you know, every every two years, um, we're, we're I think we're going to see more and more focus on our industry, um, and a lot of it's related to the pandemic and just. Well, Jason, before before we go there, um, also want to kind of highlight, um, you know, kind of in your space, you don't wear a jersey. You're not you're not a Republican. You're not a Democrat. You know, you're really just focused on um, how can I best help apartment owners and. Uh, you know, can, you know, it's, you know, before we kind of get into the issues of facing apartments, you know, let's talk about just that perspective specifically where it's, you know, even if you are a party, you know, you know, you know, outside of your duties at AAGD, you might, you know, wear a, a flag that's either red or blue. But once you kind of step into your role uh, as, you know, in the seat, you, you really have to support both parties because it's really it, you know, who's in power. Well, that's who you're going to probably have to influence. Sure. No, that's a great point. And I would just say, you know, broadly speaking, that's 
our, our issues cut across parties. Uh, the issues that face, face the real estate industry cut across parties. They're not Republican issues. They're not Democratic issues. They're, they're, they're policy issues. They're, they're public policy issues. And, you know, like you said, you've got, uh, you know, Texas has historically been a, a, a Republican state. Um, so, you know, at the state level, we're more likely to be dealing with, with Republican elected officials uh, just because of the numbers, just because they're, they're a majority of the state legislature and the statewide elected officials are, are Republican. Uh, but we deal with Democrats all the time, Republicans, Democrats, um, working on issues. Our, our political support cuts across both parties. We, can, our, we have a political action committee and we contribute uh, money to candidates who are supportive of the industry, whether they're Republican or Democrat, it, the party doesn't matter. Um, and then as you know, at, at the local level, as a city council member, it, it's it's a nonpartisan position. So you're not for city council. You're you're mayor, city council member. You're not uh, you're not a Republican. You're not a Democrat. You're there to serve everyone in the city. So um, and again, that's the primary work that we do is at the city level. So it truly is a nonpartisan, non-party uh, position, and and that's the way it should be. Mm -hmm. So we talked about. Uh, you know, kind of your role as a policymaker. We've talked about your role of, of you're not really a, a red or a blue in this seat. You're just trying to influence policy that's successful for your association. Now let's talk about the issues. Um, so obviously, you know, you kind of touched a little bit on it um, as far as uh, COVID has affected, you know, kind of all industries. And, and obviously we're no different, but we're obviously, you know, these are people's homes. So, you know, we're seeing that aspect. But on the other side, you know, so many people, you know, just sometimes don't understand that, you know, these apartments in some cases aren't owned entirely by these REITs or high net worth individuals. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of maybe you call it blue collar workforce who might take their 401k and plug in that thirty to $50,000 into a deal as a passive investor. Or, you know, you might have mom, mom and pops who have, you know, really rely on this rental and the income from this to kind of, you know, allow them to survive. Um, so there's just such a, a gamut of you have these individual small owners that, that really might be blue collar workers. And this is their retirement to uh, people that rely on this to live on from the landowner perspective. And so it's important that their interests are also taken into consideration um, as well as the renter's consideration. So, um, I know you're, you know, you know, don't mind just maybe touch on maybe what the, the CDC is kind of put in force or, you know, maybe a few other issues that you kind of are focused on today. Of course. Yeah. And what you make a great point. I mean, the, there, there's studies out there that show that I think it's nine cents out of every rent dollar. You know, there's a, there's a breakdown that the national apartment association did of, of the rent dollar and where those dollars, where you break that dollar into pieces and where do those pieces go. And the vast majority of it is, is to property taxes, to, you know, to, to payroll, to insurance, to, you know, those kind of things. Only nine cents out of that dollar is really recognized as profit to wow. the property owner. So, you know, you've got many of our members, I'd say the majority, probably the majority of our members at this point, I would say 60% or so uh, of the members of our apartment association are the mom and pop landlords. And they, like you said, I mean, they, they're just as likely to be living paycheck to paycheck as their residents may be. And so these, you know, any, any delays in, in rental income can be particularly devastating to them. 
Um, and, and we've, I think we've unfortunately seen some of our members uh, go out of business, uh, honestly, since, since the pandemic, since March. Uh, when you started to see, and right, right, you know, rightfully so, uh, government kind of step in at, at all levels to, to try to help folks out during the, during the pandemic, especially early on when we really didn't have a, a clear response and we didn't know what we were dealing with and the scope and the scale of it. Um, but, but what you saw is these eviction moratoriums uh, you know, at all levels of government down to the city level, even the city of Dallas uh, instituted an eviction ordinance that you know, prohibited, that delayed the eviction process, which is typically you know, governed by state law. The Texas Property Code governs the eviction process in Texas, but you had you know, cities and you know, at the national level, you had all these other folks weighing in and putting in these eviction moratoriums, which delayed, uh, delayed the eviction process significantly. And I think while it was well-intentioned uh, at the beginning to, to keep folks in their homes, I mean, this, these eviction moratoriums have stretched on now really since March. And I mean, we've had stories of members that have not uh, received rent, you know, rental income from their residents since February of this year. And we're now into November. Um, and they, they, they just really can't sustain that um, just on their own. So the eviction moratorium issue is a real issue. Uh, as you know, back in September, the Centers for Disease Control stepped in and put out an eviction moratorium that, that runs from September through December 31st of this year, uh, which basically says, you know, if your resident meets these certain criteria, uh, you, you're not able to evict them for non-payment of rent until the first of the year. And all of this happening while uh, we're desperately in need of, of rental assistance for, for across the country, emergency rental assistance, we've been lobbying uh, Congress for months and months, trying to get some emergency rental assistance passed through Congress. And that, that money would come down to the states and the counties to distribute, uh, to get, to pay the rent, to pay back rent. So, you know, we're just asking for some relief there. You know, if you're going to give us an eviction moratorium, we need that emergency rental assistance to go side by side with that moratorium and kind of match it, you know, time period to time period. But unfortunately, we haven't seen that happen. So that CDC order went into effect in early September, and Congress has, has failed to pass rental assistance at the federal level. There have been a few bills introduced, but you know, with, with the elections and everything, there's really not anything happening in Washington right now. And of course, you know, as we sit here today, uh, the day after the election, and we still haven't decided, you know, the presidential election still hasn't been decided. So we there's a, just so much uncertainty right now. Uh, we hope that no matter what the outcome is, we hope that there's some kind of COVID relief package that's passed as soon as possible to, uh, that includes rental assistance. You know, anywhere from 50 to $100 billion in rental assistance is, is what we've seen, what the studies have shown uh, is, is the need uh, at this point uh, to pay back rent. There's simply that much back rent that's out there right now that's outstanding. Wow. You know, and some have mentioned that, um, you know, Fannie and Freddie have allowed a forbearance option, but mm -hmm. I guess what other, you know, others don't mention is that a lot, you know, a lot of times those loans have to be, you know, I guess brought back to life within 12 months. So right. you know, that's tough. And 
The question is, is that if you decide to use a forbearance option, is that going to hurt you in future lending opportunities with Fannie and Freddie? So that yeah. necessarily isn't going to be the relief that really helps landlords short term. Right. And we've heard that over and over again, that in theory, it's great, the forbearance, but in the reality, especially these mom and pops, they just haven't been able to take advantage of the forbearance and they're they're really just They've got units that they that that you know really should be vacant and have you know a paying resident come in, uh, but they've got units that are occupied with with non-paying uh, residents that, in many cases, will not communicate with them, will not cooperate with them, will not try to make good faith payments. So you're really stuck in a, in a really difficult situation, and then all of this is enforced at the local level uh, by the justices of the, justices of the peace. Who handle evictions in, in the state of Texas. So these local judges are interpreting these federal orders and state orders, which are, are very confusing, um, even to a lawyer, someone trained in the law. And you know, JPs in Texas don't have to be lawyers. So you've just got a lot of confusion about what you can do and what you can't do. And you know, you've got a lot of a lot of people suffering. Yeah. So, you know, let's, let's talk about what, you know, what we know so far, you know, on very broad terms from last night. So, um, Jason, I, I just I applaud you for the work that you do for the association and you're so involved. And so kind of, you know, looking at the landscape, it looks like, uh, you know, the House uh, is going to probably stay in, in Republican hands yeah. at this point. And it looks like, uh, you know, the the incumbents for the most part in kind of the, you know, the, the counties that you serve, which is Dallas, Collin, Denton, for instance, mm-hmm. um, you know, pretty much held tight, um, both Republican and Democrat for the most part. So it, is it, is it almost a push, you know, when you kind of look at kind of your local state, uh, we'll say state reps at this point? Yeah, I would just say, you know, very high level across the board at all levels. Um, you know, first of all, you had massive turnout. Highest turnout since 1900. Wow! Across the country, wow! 60 more than 66.9 percent turnout nationally, which is unheard of. It's usually in the 50, low 50. Wow! And we're almost at 70 percent turnout. Texas was off the charts turnout. Texas, as of either two or four years ago, Texas was 50 out of 50 in turnout, voter turnout. Um. And this year we we were leading the nation, so wow. we went from we went from worst to first in a span of you know two to four years wow. on vote, on voter turnout, youth turnout in Texas. I saw somewhere at some point during early voting it was up six hundred percent in Texas. Wow. So you know you had a massive turnout, you had just unreal amount of money spent at all levels at the state level. In these house races, you know, these a house member for the house of representatives, the salary is six hundred dollars a month. So you know, you, you can't really live. You can't really live on. That, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like you're like seventy four hundred dollars a year is what these positions pay. But there was a race in Plano, the most expensive house race in the state between the two candidates. It was four point five million dollars raised and spent in that campaign. That was Jeff Leach in Plano. Wow. You know, most expensive house race in the state. And, you know, 4.5 million, some congressional races don't generate that much money. 
So there was a there was a really heavy push um, by the Democratic Party in Texas to try to flip the Texas House, just change the change the balance of power in the Texas House, give the Democrats control, something they haven't had since the early 2000s. In uh, two years ago, they won 12 seats. In 2018, this year they were going for nine seats. They only needed nine seats to take control of the Texas House. Total status quo election. They didn't. They didn't move the ball at all. So you're you're looking at the same partisan makeup in the Texas House that you had last legislative session. So we're at, we're really at the same point we were, you know, two years ago. So it's 87, wow. 63, 87 Republicans, 63 Democrats in the Texas House. Nothing changed, despite you know tens of millions of dollars spent, probably six times the amount of money spent this year compared to two years ago in these state house races. But you know all the Republican incumbents, uh, with the exception of one down in the Houston area, held those seats. Uh, the Democratic members who flipped seats two years ago held those seats in Dallas County. You've got two Republican members. Uh, State Representative Angie Chin Button, State Representative Morgan Meyer, they both uh, held on and narrowly a couple of hundred votes with Angie Chin Button, who represents kind of the East Dallas, Garland, uh, Richardson area. Uh, she, you know, she hung on to that seat by just a couple of hundred votes, which is an extremely slim margin. So you had a couple of close calls, but really, you know, you look at the national level, um, with you know the numbers that President Trump got in Texas, almost identical to what he got four years ago statewide. Um, you look at Senator Cornyn, United States Senator John Cornyn, uh, got almost six million votes statewide, which may be a record in Texas. He may have received the more votes than any other person that's run for office and statewide in Texas. So you had a massive, a massive turnout, but not a lot changed. So your congressional races, your state house and state senate races, really status quo. And, and at the at the national level across the country, uh, Democrats in the U.S. House uh, were looking to pick up anywhere from ten to twelve seats had been projected. Uh, it turns out the Republicans are are picking up seats. Uh, the, the the Democrats will maintain control of the U.S. House, but Republicans really defied the polls, defied expectations and are even picking up seats in places that they really weren't supposed to. So there's a lot, you know, it was a long night. It's still going now and they're still counting votes. You know, there's still millions of votes being counted across the country for US Senate. You know, the Senate is, the balance of power in the Senate is still kind of hanging out there. Got a couple of races in Georgia. Um, got, a, got a race, you know, several races that are still outstanding. So for all, you know, just, it's 2020, you know, what do you say? It's, it's a crazy, crazy year. Uh, but, but all of the, you know, all the consternation, all of the, you know, real, real stress and anxiety about what's going to happen and, and really not a lot's changed. I mean, even with the presidential race, it's, you know, as we speak right now, they're counting votes in these swing states, but these were the states that, that, you know, decided the election four years ago, essentially. So you're essentially looking at the same map you know, across the country. And I would just say it's a status quo election really from top to bottom. And, um, you know, maybe the Republicans did 
did better in Texas than we had anticipated, than a lot of people had anticipated. I think Texas is still a Republican state. I think the Democrats uh, narrowed the gaps in some areas. I think the demographics are changing in Texas. Um, you know, the, the political outcomes may not reflect that now, but I do think in your larger urban centers and your suburban areas, you are seeing you know, very significant growth in you know, minority population, younger voters that are voting now like they haven't before um, in, in greater numbers even than two years ago uh, when, when you saw a really big youth turnout. So a lot of these areas are changing really fast and Texas is just a very big diverse state. Your, your West Texas and your East Texas are still kind of Republican strongholds and those areas will kind of carry the Republicans over the finish line in some races, especially statewide. But in your, your large urban areas and, and going into your suburban areas, Denton County, Collin County are becoming more and more democratic. So it's, it's very interesting uh, times. And then at the local level, you know, as crazy as everything else was, you know, your local elections because of COVID-19, your city council elections that should have been in May were on this November ballot. So you're voting for President Trump, Vice President Biden, all the way down to dog catcher, you know, that way down at the bottom of the ballot. Um, so these these city council members, you know, and, and mayors, you know, that were running this year, the, the voter turnout was, you know, on, you know, off the charts compared to what it usually is. You know, like in, you know, you're, you know, when you were in Rowlett on the city council, well, you may get a couple thousand people that vote something like that. It's, you know, very low voter participation in your city races. Well, this was presidential level participation in these local races. So, you know, you saw just, just very interesting dynamics at the local level. And of course, they don't run as Republicans or Democrats. So people would go in to vote and they would vote Republican, Democrat. They might cross over and vote for one person on each side. But when they got down to the, to the city council and the mayor, you know, races they don't have an r or d next to their name so you know you had a you really i think you had some confusion and you probably had some people that went in and voted for president for senate for congress maybe even state representative and then you get into all these judges and nobody knows who they are and then you get down to the you know at the very bottom of the ballot these city council members and and i think there's a lot of of, of drop off where people voted at the top and then just got down to the end and said, you know, I don't know who Mayor Smith is versus, you know, Sally Jones. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to do and just left it blank. So yeah, you know, we call it, we call that the undervote. And I think you, you probably saw some pretty significant undervote that impacted these local officials. So just a crazy year. Um, but, you know, we, the apartment association endorsed 35 candidates so local and state candidates, and these were all people that, that we vetted. Our members vet these candidates, they interview these candidates, they ask them questions about their, their background in real estate, their knowledge of our issues. And then, you know, we, as, as an association, we decide whether to endorse that candidate or not endorse that candidate. Um, out of our endorsed candidates, we had a good night. We had 80% of our candidates won election or re-election. Uh, which, which is good because these are all folks that, that really do know our industry, have been supportive of our industry in the past, 
or are have said they're open to to learning more about our industry. So they are these are people that we can work with and help try to you know try to make positive improvements for the real estate community. Man, I tell you what, you know, I, I'm done looking at polls. I'm just going to figure out, Jason, who are you endorsing? Right? I mean, that, that's what I'm relying on. You know, I don't, I don't need the big money. Give me Jason Simon's opinion. Great go. job. Just throwing well, darts to the dartboard. I do have a question though. Just, you yeah. know, I, I don't know if you can answer this, but you know, you've been around politics a long time, and so in the scenario, which again, we don't know if this is how it's going to play out, but in the scenario where you do have a, a president from one party that's different in, from the Senate that has yeah. a different party. So in this case, you know, we're Biden to be president, we'll just say, and it looks like the Republicans are going to hold the Senate yeah. from an apartment owner association standpoint. Um, on one hand, you know, there's not going to be much big le legislation that's going to be passed. So that might say that, hey, they're not going to change whatever tax laws have previously been gone or, or anything that requires the House and the Senate. So on the big ticket items, you know, you might say from an organization that, hey, maybe it's not going to move the needle that much. There's going to be gridlock. Yeah. But, you know, as we've seen from what we just discussed in the CDC, um, you know, there's going to be cabinet members. There's going to be, uh, you know, for example, the, the director of the EPA is going to be able to, to, to have a lot of power in this right. case, the CDC. So you have, um, you know, these other organizations that are going to be within the executive branch that still can can obviously affect uh, not legislation, but um, regulatory uh, yeah. issues that affect the association. So, um, you know, you're not, you might be immune from the big things, but you're not going to be immune from regulation from other agencies. So sure. um, taking that all in and, and just supposing a like I said, we don't know if this is right, but a president of one party that's different from the Senate, you know, how how, how would you view that from an association standpoint, potentially? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 I would say it's not unusual. Um, you know, looking back through history, I mean, we've we've seen these situations with divided government, you know, over the years, um, and I I think really, you know, a lot of you know, I don't want to speak just, you know, across the board, but I, I do think you do see a preference and, uh, you know, voters that, that want to see, uh, you know, a, a, a president of a part of one party in a Senate or a house of, of another party. I mean, it's really kind of, kind of goes into the checks and balances system um, and, and may uh, prevent some, some overreach by one side or the other. Um, I think that as an, you know, from an association perspective, it goes back to, to what we talked about at the beginning, you know, those relationships, you know, do, you know, are you able to build those relationships? You know, hopefully you have existing relationships uh, now that you can use, uh, you know, across the aisle. So relationships with Republicans, relationships with Democrats, um, you know, at, at, you know, at the federal level, if you have relationships with the, you know, with the White House, with somebody in the administration, or uh, at these agencies, you know, at HUD, at EPA, um, you know, some of these other agencies that have an impact on our industry, and really trying to trying to leverage those relationships and trying to exercise um, those relationships, uh, you know, with with both parties, and and really, I think, like you said, you know, getting some narrow things done. Um, you're not going to see the big, the big tax law changes and the big kind of sweeping policies go through, um, you know, 
there was a lot of talk of that before the election. I think uh, there was there you know there was talk of a, a big change across the country that there may be a, you know there may be a President Biden, there may be a Democratic Senate, there you know, there is a Democratic House, and there will continue to be, um, but that you would see some really big kind of sweeping policy changes, and you're just not going to see that. I mean, the country is just too divided. Um, no matter which side you're on, I mean, just look at the map. There are some real, I think, deep divisions in the country um, and, and good people on both sides, but it's just the reality, I think, of, of, of our nation right now. The, the things, there's, there's not going to be a lot done in the next couple of years uh, legislatively, I don't think. Um, and then there's always, you know, the, the, first, the first midterm election, the first two years of a four-year term, you know, you typically see the party in power you see the people kind of vote against the party in power um, and as just kind of a, you know, depending on, on how far the party's able to go. So you do, see, you, you know, you will see uh, whatever happens with, with the election now, but you will see some significant changes two years from now, uh, depending on who your president is. Um, I will say, you know, we've got a history of being able to work with, with both sides, presidents of both parties. Um, you, you'll typically see at the agency level with like HUD or EPA, you know, you've got you've got the, the the person that the president puts in to to lead HUD. You know, like Dr. Dr. Ben Carson is is currently the secretary of HUD in the Trump administration. Uh, but but the people that work for him, the assistants and kind of the rank and file people that work in those agencies, you know, some of those people have been there for 30, 40, 50 years and have served under multiple presidents of both parties. Um, so you don't see as much change there. But again, it comes back to your relationships. Do you know someone there that will take a meeting with you, that will sit down with you, that will you know, talk to you about the issues? And that's really all we're asking for is just a seat at the table and an opportunity to talk about uh, why our issues are important, why our industry is important, and you know, whatever policies they may be considering, how those impact us you know, positively or negatively. And um, it's, it's gonna be a very interesting times um, but I, I feel good about uh, certainly what's happened at the state and local level. I will say just today, um, you know, the, the Republicans are going to are going to control the, the state house. And as part of that, uh, they'll be electing a new speaker uh, for the state house. And it looks like that speaker is going to be uh, Representative Dade Phelan. And Dade Phelan uh, represents a district in the Beaumont area of Texas. And he's actually uh, a rental property owner. He's got a background in, wow. you know, I believe, residential and commercial uh, real estate. And so he's got kind of broad support from Republicans and Democrats. He claims he has enough votes to be elected Speaker of the House, uh, which would, would, would be great for our industry. We have a great relationship with him. He actually carried our uh, primary uh, bill last session uh, the, the law that changed that changed on late fees, he carried that legislation for the Texas Apartment Association, which means he was the primary sponsor of that and kind of shepherded that through the, the legislative process and got it passed, uh, which you know I think had somewhat of a positive effect for our industry. But at the very least, he understands our industry, and you know we're hopeful that he uh, becomes the next speaker. Certainly, somebody that that knows us and we know him. And, and we can work with him. And it's a, it's a pretty powerful position and going into the legislative session, which begins in January of 2021. Mm. 
last question, you know, a lot of times, you know, there's, you can ask kind of why, why was there so much money poured into Texas this cycle? And, you know, I guess through that question is number one, you know, do we expect that to be a continuing trend or two, is it just because this election was the election that determined who drew the congressional maps that it just fired everyone up? And, you know, I would, you know, propose that. And, you know, you look at South Carolina and you see, a, you know, the opponent to Lindsey Graham, you know, had a hundred million dollar war chest. And, and so you really saw that, you know, there was really money spent nationwide. But um, right. in Texas, you know, we're going to have obviously a, a governor election that, you know, that's going to probably be pretty hotly contested. So right. is, you know, is, is this kind of big money spending and, and contention the new norm or, you know, was this really driven by the congressional maps? Yeah, I think it's a, I, I don't know. You know, I don't know. If, I don't, I think it remains to be seen. Um, but I, I certainly think that influenced um, certainly at the, at the Texas state house level, uh, as you know, that you know, the state house is, is, is going to be uh, in charge of the redistricting process for, for the most part, at least the initial stages of drawing those maps. And, you know, every 10 years after the, the census, uh, the political boundaries change um, at, the, at the local, state and federal level. So even your local uh, city council districts like in the you know, city of Dallas, those maps are going to change. You know, once those census numbers come in and you look at your at your population, the population has, in Texas has obviously grown, you know, exponentially since 2010. And so it'll be interesting to see uh, how those how those lines are drawn. But really, the party in power uh, draws those maps, and and that really uh, influences you know political power for the next 10 years. So these maps will be drawn and it won't be changed again for another 10 years. So I do think that that had a, had a really big impact on, on the spending at the state house level. I mean, you had Michael Bloomberg, you know, spending hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, putting, putting money into the state of Texas um, and in other states, trying to flip those legislative chambers in other states uh, to, to impact the redistricting process across the country. Um, but I, you know, I, I think that it's going to be probably going to be this way for a while. I mean, it's, it's just increasingly more expensive to run these races. Um, you know, one, you know, million, two million, it, it may be the new norm for some of these, uh, house races. Um, you know, the, the gubernatorial election, you know, governor, governor Abbott's sitting on, you know, probably 40, 50, $60 million wow. you know, in a war chest right now that he's ready wow. to, He's ready to spend against anybody that runs against him. Lieutenant governor would be the same thing. Attorney general, you know, especially your statewide elections. And Texas is such a big state. It's so expensive uh, to, to run a campaign in, statewide in Texas. So, you know, tens and tens of millions of dollars, if, if not more. Um, it's, 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 just, it's just the way it is. You know, it would be nice if you could kind of take some of that out of the process, but I think we're, we're too far gone, you know, maybe uh, we're, we've got, it's, it's just become, you know, it, it's just so critical to, to winning these races, to, to being able to get, get a message out. And, you know, that's a big reason why we have a political action committee for the apartment association is to make sure we're in, in those races, we're involved. These candidates know who we are. You know, they know they can call me, they can call you, they could call, 
you know, any, anyone and, and if an issue is coming up and, and that's really all we're asking for is just that opportunity to, to have conversations and to, to educate them. But it's, it's just very, very expensive. Mm -hmm. I agree. I, I still can't get over, you know, you're, you're at a really good point. You know, you're making $600 a month. And I mean, is that, does that pay for a, a half a day of living in Austin? You know, I mean, it's when you yeah. are carving around, I mean, that's, yeah, it's a pretty wild number. Yeah, it's way, way, way out of whack, but it's, it's just the reality of it. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I do think that the redistricting in, impacted it and, and probably drove that spending up. But, you know, like you said, you know, a couple of years, you're going to have the, the statewide elections for governor, lieutenant governor, and you're going to see the money, money pour in again, because Texas, I mean, Texas is a very, you know, big, influential, important state. Uh, for for so many reasons, politically, economically, uh, there's just a lot of interest in Texas. It's a great place to do business. It's a great place, you know. It's a great real estate market. Um, but there's just so much interest and focus on Texas that, you know, I, I don't see it changing anytime soon politically. Yeah, well, that's that's a that's a great way to end this conversation jason um just thank you just incredible insights especially because it's it's the day after the election so uh, thank yeah. you for for joining us today and thank you christina sure. and thanks everybody that, that joined us today live so thank you everybody thanks thank jason you.